Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good morning and welcome to our annual Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics. Both those of you who are here in person and folks who are on Zoom and on our live stream and ultimately on Facebook. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future, and I'm here with Mike Murphy, my longtime political opponent and friend and the co-director of the Center. I believe this conference will be an exciting and revealing examination of the 2022 midterm election that defied history and confounded pundits. But first, let me turn this over to Mike. Thank you, Bob, and welcome, everybody, both through the magic of electrons and here in person. It's great to see a lot of familiar faces, and thank you all for your support of the Center for the Political Future. A few words about the Center before we dive into midterm madness and beyond as we take a look at what was really the most remarkable midterm, I think, in my 30-plus years of uh, hanging around politics, and we're going to dive into every aspect of it and look a little bit at the future, 2024, being political junkies, we're more than happy to get going on the next one already. So the center exists to do multiple things. First, we help kids here find and discover the world of practical politics. We have a muscular internship program because we believe nothing is a better experience for somebody interested in this than actually going out into the world and doing it to kind of buttress what they learn here, uh, studying all the classical political science things. We also try to be, as, as Bob likes to say, active in the public square, public by holding panels like this. We've done a ton of stuff, even during COVID electronically. We're kind of warming up our in-person stuff again. We do this Warsaw Conference after every major election to try to provide value there and to follow our mission that Bob and I personify of your opponent does not need to be your enemy. You know, we we want to break the equation that's taken over and, and calcified modern politics of one side saying to the other, we're right, you're evil, so we can do anything to you. We're fighting evil, and then vice versa. So we look at the incentives of politics, how it really works, and what we can learn to try to align that we can disagree, disagreeably, agreeing on one set of facts, and then having a hell of a fight about what we ought to do to remedy those problems. So that's the mission, and it's very rewarding work. The, the kids and the kid staffers here, the students, I should say, now that I'm an old geezer and use kids too much, they're invaluable. And it's been great to see them move off. Many of them graduate and get into the world of policy, government, or politics. So with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce our next speaker to kind of launch us, America's coolest dean from the Dornsife College, our friend and incredible supporter of this institute in our mission. That would be Amber Miller. Thank you, Mike, and good morning. It is my pleasure to welcome all of you um, here and remotely to the 2022 Warsaw Conference um, at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. The Warsaw Conferences and Lecture Series have become signature events for us at Dornsife, so I want to just thank Hope Warsaw for her generous support um, in making all of these possible. I don't see her in the room today, but let's thank her, whether she's here or remotely. She's on the screen. 
I'd also like to thank the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival for partnering with us on this event and so many other events over the past few years. And I, I just want to say as a key contributor to our Academy in the Public Square initiative, which is a signature initiative of mine, this center brings together on a regular basis experts inside the academy, outside the academy, journalists and political leaders from both sides of the aisle for fact-based, rigorous policy debate, which is something we feel deeply is important, um, not just at the university, but around the nation and around the world. We wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the leadership of our two illustrious leaders, Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy. They and their terrific team, led by Kame Akhavan, um, bring us these incredible, thoughtful, engaging, and provocative events. So let's just give them a round of applause and thanks. As they both said, we are here to unpack the 2022 midterm elections, ones that defied expectations and defied history. Democrats will hold the Senate, as well as many more seats in the House than the pollsters and pundits anticipated, defying the rule of modern American politics that if a president has low approval ratings, he or she will get shellacked in the midterm elections. At the same time, the Republicans will control the House and it seems that some of the purple states are turning red. You know, think Florida and Ohio. Encouragingly, I'll say that most candidates, it seems, called each other to concede with grace, even in the most mudslinging and competitive races. And interestingly, too, we saw a split in some of the tickets that seems to indicate that voters, at least in some cases, may be focused more on the messages coming from individual candidates than just filling out that party bubble. But that's just what a non-expert can glean from, you know, turning the news on and scrolling through uh, the internet every once in a while over the last week. So I'm going to turn it over to our panelists who are going to take us inside and tell us what they think some of the most important takeaways have been. And I really want to hear what some of the most important underreported takeaways have been. What is it that we may all be missing? And of course, as Mike said, um, those political junkies among us are dying to hear what it all means for the future. So let's get on with the program. I want to thank in advance all of our panelists for today and the audience. Thank you all for joining us. We have a terrific day lined up, and I would like to turn it back over to Bob to introduce our first panelists. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dean Miller. For I'm grateful for your leadership and your friendship and for your guidance as we undertake and now we're six years into undertaking uh, this endeavor. Our first panel today will be moderated by Hank Plant. He is a Peabody Award and Emmy Award-winning journalist who has covered presidential, gubernatorial, Senate, and congressional and local campaigns. We are proud to say that he will be a Bonnet Fellow this spring at the USC Center for the Political Future. Let's bring him and our panelists on stage to discuss our first topic, What the Heck Happened? Thank you and good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be here. Please welcome our panelists today. Seema, do you want to come up first? Seema Mehta is a staff writer for the Los Angeles Times covering the 2022 midterm elections. Thank you. Bill Carrick, a highly respected political consultant and an old friend. Bill, thank you for being here. Elon Carr uh, is the former U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, former Deputy Assistant DA in Los Angeles. Thank you, Elon, for being here. 
And Simone Sanders is on the way, I am told. Lynn Vavrick is the Marvin Hoffenberg Professor of American Politics and Public Policy at UCLA and contributing columnist to The Upshot at The New York Times. We're going to talk about the midterms, but uh, as a journalist, i got to go with the news of the day. Nancy Pelosi just announced uh, that uh, she is uh, not stepping down from the leadership, going to stay in Congress. Any quick takes from our panel? You want to start this way, Elon? What do you think? Well, it's an end of a end of an era for sure. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, I, I have a long list of disagreements with with the speaker policy wise, but she, I think, history will say that she was a remarkably effective and strong leader at a time when it's gotten increasingly harder to be a legislative leader at that level. In the old days, they all used to be, you know, tyrants, but now it's gotten very, very difficult to really exercise authority and control. And she did that in a major way. She was a very, very strong leader. I think the, the caucus will, will feel the lack of, of that strength. Um, on the other hand, also, she's just nationally a, a quite a polarizing figure. And so that's, uh, you know, that's the downside. And, uh, and at a time when, when things are, are very polarized, you know, we can only hope and aspire as the Center for Political Future does, that we yeah. can, we can uh, come together and try to, try to move forward in, in, in some degrees of bipartisanship. Thanks. They're certainly going to miss her fundraising, too. The oh, for sure. Over a billion dollars, I think. For sure. uh, Bill, what's your take? Uh, uh, I think that she's a remarkable speaker, probably either one or two on the list of our speakers in terms of effectiveness and a, a rare blend of not only politics but also policy. She's a very knowledgeable policy wonk and no one knows how challenging leading the Democratic caucus is uh, in, in real life. And she, she did a remarkable job under four different presidents, including the last one who was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and she's, she's just a remarkable figure in, in American history. And uh, I, I, she's going to be missed. And I, I, I think she thought building in a transition would be the sensible uh, course to take. But... She's going to be missed because she, she has an enormous respect across, in both parties. Yeah. Seema, as a journalist, I've always found uh, she's a reporter's dream. I mean, on a dull news day, because I, I worked mostly in San Francisco for the CBS station, political reporter. And on a dull news day, all I had to do was grab a camera person <laughs> and go, if she was in town, find Pelosi. So you, you yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, she was ever quotable. She always, you know, let her feelings be known. I mean, we can all remember that sort of infamous picture when a former President Trump is giving the State of the Union and she's ripping yeah. up the papers. I mean, <laughs> she's never shrunk away from uh, from the media or from, you know, from public attention. But I think, you know, what um, the two of them said is absolutely right. I mean, she's, if you look back in history, it's hard to think of somebody who is more effective, regardless of what you think about her policy. If you look back at history, it's hard to think of somebody who is more effective at, at controlling her caucus. And right. you know, if you look at Paul Ryan or John Boehner, I mean, a number of Republican uh, leaders in recent years and just sort of the problems they've had. And she largely was able to keep her caucus in line, which is pretty, especially you know, given how, how wide-ranging the views are in, among the Democrats in the House. That's, that's a big challenge, and she was very, very effective. And, you know, I, I think it has to be said, I mean, she did this in a very male-dominated culture. I mean, especially when she started, when she was first went to Congress in 1987. That was an old boys' network, much more than now. Uh, what, what's your what's your take on it, Lynn? Yeah, um, 
I think that uh, all of this is right. And, um, of course, there are lots of consequences for governing and the politics of the House. But I sort of am drawn, I study campaigns and elections and messaging, and I'm sort of drawn to what it means for the future. And I, so I think two things will be very interesting to watch. Symbolically, I think it's a very important moment, sort of the passing of this baton to the next generation of leadership. Who's that going to be? And what is the, you know, what is the takeaway symbolically from the, this passing of the baton? And then I think that it's likely, that's very exciting. It's a time when people in both parties are saying they're frustrated with the leadership of their parties. So here's an opportunity for a party to say, okay, we hear you and we're going to do something about it. But it's tempting to think like, oh, maybe that will bring some comedy or some quiet quieting down of people's discontent. And I think, in fact, it probably will not. And if anything, we'll just exacerbate um, this sense of the parties being far apart. So uh, let's let's talk about the midterms, because that's what the day is mostly about today. I think probably going to talk about Pelosi quite a bit as we go through the day today and other issues. And then let's work this way now. And, and uh, what's, do you have any general broad brushstrokes about the thing. We've all seen the headlines, uh, but what's your sense of the midterms? Yeah, I guess if I had to have like one broad brush and and paint with it, I would say uh, this time, same as the last. Sort of that it, it was largely district by district, kind of a, a repeat of what we saw in the last congressional elections. And which is to say that um, the parties are farther apart than they've been uh, since the New Deal. And uh, people are more alike within the parties. And that just makes it very hard for people to try out the other side. And so what you see is people, you know, sticking with their party. And what that means is there's going to be less volatility election by election. You can see that playing out on Tuesday night. So not a lot of change. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, Mike Murphy called it remarkable. I agree with that, I think. Simone Sanders, you know, she is former senior advisor and chief spokesperson to Vice President Kamala Harris, former fellow USC Center for the Political Future. Wonderful to see you. Happy to be here. I'm sorry for my delay. I did not have Speaker Pelosi stepping down (laughs) on my bingo card this morning. And I'm trying to Uh lock in a promised interview from one, the one and only Hakeem Jeffries, so we'll right. stay tuned. So what's, what's your general sense, Simone? I'm going to throw you right into it now on the midterms. Any, any, I've been asking for just kind of broad strokes before we jump into it. Yes, I have a couple broad strokes, but first I want to say thank you to um, USC Center for the Political Future. Bob Schramm is the only person I will fly back across the country <laughs> for. Uh, the work that uh, USC is doing here is just absolutely amazing. This is one of my favorite times as a fellow. And I see Tad Devine back there. And I like to say I owe my entire TV career to Tad Devine, <laughs> who told the people that uh, I was good enough to go on television when I worked for Bernie Sanders in 2016. The midterm elections, I think, so I was one of the people that said, mm, I don't really think a red wave is materializing. I think that conventional wisdom is smacking right up into reality. And I said that before Election Day. And then I went to Wisconsin a week before Election Day, and everything I saw on the ground led me to believe that the conversation we were having nationally was just wrong. There was energy on the ground. People were engaged. Young people, the energy on these college campuses was insane. Uh, I I followed and canvassed um, with some uh, uh, African-American organizers who are not tied to any campaign, but they're about organizing, uh, like going to places where people usually do not go. 
And there was just so much energy. And so I, I attribute that to a couple things. One, Dobbs, obviously. I think the, the Dobbs decision was very underrated in the lead up to election day. And then post election day, I sat on a bunch of panels where people were like, mm, of course, Roe. And I'm like, y'all were some of the same people saying <laughs> Roe was not a factor, that Roe was not a kitchen table issue. But my opinion is that there were a number of factors. Roe, the Dobbs decision was one of them, but uh, people went to the ballot box and they made decisions about a number of issues. It wasn't just one thing. So uh, some people were going to the ballot box with the economy in mind, with their gas prices in mind, concurrently with their ability to, to make decisions about their own bodies and not have the politicians in their doctor's offices. Some folks, if you're in Texas or Buffalo, New York, you were going or uh, anywhere in America where there is gun violence, you were going to the ballot box with that in mind. And so I think that voters are sophisticated, and we saw that play out on Tuesday. There are facts to back up what you just said. The exit polls, uh, some of the exit polls showed that uh, where inflation was what we thought we'd be voting on, abortion and democracy mattered. Uh, 61% of the exit polls showed that people were upset about the Supreme Court decision. Uh, two-thirds uh, said they were worried that democracy itself uh, was on the ballot. Simone raised a really interesting point, which is that we all, uh, many of us expected a red wave. Uh, and this is a good segue to SEMA as a journalist, because I got to ask you, uh, how did the media get it so wrong? I mean, I think that this was just such an unusual year, and I do, I do think we did get it wrong, uh, most of us. Um, but I think, you know, it's like if you look at if you look at history, if you look at trends, and that's, you know, what we usually go on, you know, the first midterm during a president's uh, first term tends to go against him. Uh, president Biden has pretty low approval ratings. You know, inflation, voters are very concerned about inflation. Gas prices, particularly in California, are incredibly high. And, you know, when you talk to voters out and about in, in some of these targeted districts, they did bring up gas prices and the cost of, you know, buying groceries. Um, so that concern was there. But I do think Dobbs was, you know, we haven't had such a such a remarkable, or, you know, history-making Supreme Court decision, you know, right before an election. So I do think that was so unprecedented that I don't think we fully appreciated, you know, the, the impact it would have. Also, I mean, we usually think that um, younger voters, voters of color, do not turn out as much. Uh, Democrats uh, don't turn out as much during midterm elections. And this time, I mean, we still need to look at, you know, the, the full end results. But, you know, you saw students, for example, at the University of Michigan standing in line for two hours to vote. And I can't think of another midterm election where that happened. So I think that there was just so many... Unknowns. And then I do think with abortion, I mean, this is something that's always struck me because, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than the average voter, but I remember when I was in high school, abortion was still thought of as an issue. It was still thought of as in play. And then in talking to younger voters, younger women um, in recent years, it just seemed like it was viewed as settled ground. I mean, so I don't think it necessarily was as motivating for voters in the last, you know, you know since I've been covering politics, honestly. And I think, you know, with the overturning of Roe, that was, I just think so many people just never thought that they would ever see that in their lifetime. And it really just Changed the you know the course of the election in a way that you know, and the, the behavior of voters in a way that we don't you know we don't fully I don't think we even fully understand it yet. Bill, what's your you know the media very well. What's your take? How did the media get it so wrong? Well, I, I think the first thing is the media has become very dependent on uh, the handicappers, the pollsters, the aggregators, the partisan pollsters. All of them were wrong about most everything. And the media followed along with their theories about what this campaign was going to be about. And it wasn't about any of that. I mean, you know, the Dodd decision obviously had a big influence on it. It wasn't really a test of Joe Biden's popularity. Mm-hmm. If Joe Biden's popularity didn't get any better, uh, you know, in, in a week or the last three days of the campaign, it wasn't about his popularity. It was about... 
people just deciding that they were going to vote different reasons, and there, there was no sort of this conformity that the, the, the media and the polling industry and the political consultants all had a, a focus that this was going to be a typical midterm, and they were just flat ass wrong. So, Can I add one other point to that, though? As a you know, I host a show on MSNBC now on Saturdays and Sundays, and um, a show on Peacock. And it is the amount of people that do not talk to actual human beings that <laughs> go to the grocery store and don't order from Instacart is astounding to me. And I found this when I worked at the White House when we first started talking about remember transitory inflation. Okay, it's because we would have meetings at the White House and people would say things like, oh, this is just going away. And I'm like, have y'all been to the grocery store lately? I still get my own groceries. And so there is a there is a steep disconnect between the people who sit in anchor chairs, the folks who some of some of the pollsters who do the polling, the pundits and the people that folks usually go to and the real lived experience of what is happening in communities across the country. And given everything that has been that went on in the lead up to the midterm election, it was astounding to me that people weren't like, oh, I need to get out here and talk to more real people. The media comes up with a way of collecting data that is, mm-hmm. if Lynn did what these people do in, uh, in the polling, media polling side, she, she, she would be out of a job. <laughs> I mean, this business of like averaging polls across with massively different methodologies, averaging them up and say, Here, the average poll says X. Well, it's meaningless. It's not really based on any kind of scientific research. It's just something that was made up so everybody can compete. Who I got a poll today, which is what the media does. They spend the, all of the all the last three months going. I, we have a poll today, and it shows X and Y. Or the average of all the polls says this. And then, and then on top of it, Republicans invested a ton of money in doing their own polls and shoving them out and they all got collected in these averages mm-hmm. and they have a little you know astra you know little thing with an r behind their name or a d <laughs> i mean and, and it's just, it's ridiculous is it most of the conventional wisdom was wrong because most of the people who were trying to figure out what was going on had flawed methodology i mean i would just add like one little thing which is i do feel because of how much you know, how fewer reporters there are in the world across the country. Um, you know, you have news deserts all across the country where there's really nobody uh, covering, talking to voters, et cetera. That yeah. I don't feel like, you know, we have as, I mean, we had a small team at the Times, obviously, but we don't have as many people as we used to talk out in the real world talking to people. We used to have a polling department at the Times. You know, that's long gone. And polling is very expensive. Um, so I do think part of this is because, you know, the media has shrunk so much. I mean, you have the New York Times, you have the Washington Post, but aside from that, you know, you don't have, you know, these large, Numbers of reporters who you know who can you know, be out in you know so many states talking to voters, et cetera. I just have a lot of questions about uh, how accurate polling is these days in the age of cell phones, and I I have a hunch maybe Bob and Mike know more about this than anybody. Maybe we'll hear some of that later in the day. But but Elon, let me get your take on this because uh, we're talking about polling and then and the reliance on polling. Yeah, I I, I agree with Bill. I mean, I, I think the media got this wrong because because the polling and the pollsters got. And yes, there are self-serving polls that are wrong by design, but, but let's face it, um, a lot of the polls that were not self-serving and not generated for PR reasons got it wrong, and we see this over and over again. Now, I'm not one of those who say you can't trust polling because I've seen, I've seen savvy polling work wonders, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of garbage out there, and, and not knowing how to separate the wheat from the chaff is a real liability, and if you just report on this stuff, you, you're, 
you're, you know, you're liable to get it wrong. And we've seen this over and over again. This isn't the first example. By the way, the Eric Cantor race uh, was a perfect example of polling, polling gone, gone run amok. And so, you know, you really have to know how to, how to, you know, separate the, the real polls from, from the, the bad polls. Yeah, well, we, say we, this, we, though, we, we saw it right polls. here in the mayor's race. We had all these public polls that came out at various points in time yeah. that said, well, Caruso's catching up. And I, mean, I don't think a damn thing happened during the campaign. Karen Bass was a Democrat with this in a, a city that's 54% Democratic registration and 14% Republican. Mm -hmm. Who needs a poll? <laughs> I'm going to jump in to, uh, I can't believe I'm going to defend the media and the pollsters. Uh, but, Thank you. but just, just, you know, because it's, why not? And so I, I, I think it's helpful to, to think about why the narrative was that the red wave was coming. Um, and, you know, part of it is the polling, the result that Biden's approval rating was low. And that was fueling this narrative. But a second part was history. You know, like media finally recognizing that political scientists and people who study politics had shown decade after decade that after the president wins, his party takes a loss in the midterms. That's not made up. That's not make believe. That's truth. And so I want to say, like, leaning into that, that fact, that's good reporting in my view. Now, what's tricky is that sometimes things change. And so you mentioned Eric Cantor and that, that Obama time, the Cantor election, Boehner, everybody remembers Boehner yelling at his, his, you know, get your asses in line. Like that whole moment in time is the beginning of a change in American politics. That is, we're living the end of that change now. And so that, that means that history is not as good a guide. And that's why the narrative wasn't quite right. It's, we can have a long conversation about whether polling is broken. A lot of this is trying to get the turnout right. Are Democrats going to turn out? Are Republicans? Are young people? So a lot of what looks like a miss is about how the composition of the electorate might be changing, not necessarily that the tools of polling are broken. And then the last thing I'll just say to try to rehabilitate all these industries <laughs> um, is that we're in this period of time where elections are really close. Because Democrats and Republicans in the mass population are roughly in balance. And that's going to make getting it right, if you're a pollster, that is going to make getting it right really, really hard. Because now your poll has to be accurate within a half a percentage point. And man, that is hard. Yeah. Plus that or minus hard. four doesn't work anymore. Plus or minus four doesn't work anymore. It's this is a hard time, a tough time. Well, also, I mean, let's not the one thing that's really changed. You know, former President Trump. I think everything, whether it's polling, predictions, trying to talk to voters. You know, when you're out and about, I think everything has changed since you know 2015, 2016. But I, I guess I would say to that is yes, everything has changed since 2015, 2016. Part of that is the new voters into the electorate. And mm -hmm. I guess what to bolster what Lynn is saying, I, I also agree. I don't think every poll, I don't think polling should go out of the window. I actually am more partial to focus groups because you get to ask people follow-up questions and you get them on the record for what they really believe. The poll is forcing people into these little boxes. Um, but I think polling is just a snapshot in time of what a particular group of people feel at the time that they are asked the question. Since 2016, there are 24 million new voters, new young voters in the electorate. Not to mention the people whom all of America doesn't vote. Why do y'all think there are always <laughs> voter registration drives every single year? Every, all of America doesn't vote. Just a little over half of the American population votes. And so if you think about that, not even talking about young people, as we dig into the numbers for young people this election, I think only about 27% of young people came out, but young people made the difference. But we're not at the ceiling. There's more here. So I really just think that 
we have to also think about who is the electorate. And the assumption that black voters, that Latino voters, that young people were not going to show up. Well, where did that come from? Because they showed up, young people particularly, showed up the most in 2020. They had the most to lose in this midterm election. And to me, it made sense that they came to the polls in the numbers that they did. And is there a herd mentality among the political reporters? The drumbeat starts, well, it's going to be a red wave. I mean, none of us would really admit that, I think. But you kind of get caught up with it when you're on the campaign trail. It's human nature. When something is repeated enough times, you're going to say, well, it's inevitable. Um, And that really is the... uh, that's the check we all have to make, by the way, not only in, in journalism and in the media, but in life. You know, when you hear something over and over again, it's part of the reason why we talk about the polarization in our country today. The lack of exposure to, to competing views, to alternative ideas, is one of the reasons why we are where we are. So that, you know, when you hear something over and over again, you, it, it does create a herd mentality. And that's something we all, and, and whatever we do in life, we always have to check that and make sure we're exposing ourselves to, to alternative theories, alternative ideas. I know that uh, Norman Ornstein wrote a really good piece about this, American Enterprise Institute, and he said that uh, a lot of the press is fearful about showing a liberal bias. And so maybe they, maybe their tone changed a little bit more in predicting a red wave and not wanting to be perceived. I don't, th- I don't think that's true. I mean, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I mean, I do think, you know, I mean, I, I keep going back. You mentioned this. I mentioned this earlier. I mean, if you look at historic trends, this is what history tells us. I mean, the only time, there's two times since World War II where this was not true. One was right after 9-11, and the other one, I cannot remember what it was. But, um, but you know, but this, you know, this is 50, 60, 70 years of history. So I, I think, you know, we do have to be cognizant that the world is changing, and, you know, each election is different. And certainly, you know, if you look back at 20, I was looking at some congressional stats last night because that's what I do for fun. Um, <laughs> if you look back at 2010, there was a, a, big, a, there was a big red wave, and it stopped at the California border, and, you know, the, not a single seat was flipped. So we know that there are anomalies, but also... I do think again, like if you know, if you look at history, if you look at you know trend lines, I mean, this is that's usually what we use to sort of you know, think about to you know make projections about the future. The two campaigns, uh, 1962 was the other one where the uh, <laughs> sitting president uh, did well in the midterms, and uh, he, and he, but he, unlike Joe Biden, he was wildly popular at the time. The other thing to think about is so then let's say the narrative out there is oh red wave red wave, and uh, there's no challenge to that. Why not? Because if you're Joe Biden, you know, you don't, no, no, we are going to do great, right? Even if you think that might be true or we're going to hold all the, and it's going to be really close and we're going to take the set because you need to set expectations so you exceed them, right? Nobody, nobody wants politically to set the expectations, you know, so high. And then with the, you know, the sweep of history going the other direction, you, you think like it's probably not going to happen, but we're going to set those expectations. So I think that also feeds into the narrative that even if internal polling was suggesting or even public polling suggesting Democrats were going to do better than everybody thought, you know, no, no Democrats going to load up on that. You want to beat those expectations. Well, but they conservative were saying media. that, though. I'm sorry. I just, but I think Democrats were saying that they were going to do well. I asked, you know, I asked my colleagues at the White House because some stories came out. On election day, they said the White House was bracing for a shellacking. And I texted them and I said, are y'all bracing for a shellacking? I'm about to go on TV. I just want to know. They were like, no. I said, okay, because this flies in the face of everything that we have been discussing. So I do think there is something to be said about, I do not think that the, that the media apparatus as a whole is afraid of a liberal bias. But I do think that the my Republican friends have been extremely adept 
into getting the media apparatus and the rest of us to have the conversation in their particular frame. That is part of what happened here. That's why the polls that Bill talked about, the, the polls that Republican pollsters flooded the, the airway, flooded the, 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 the field with. I, I really do believe because Democrats were saying, no, we think there's some there there. And it was completely ignored. Part of it was history. But I also think a large part of it is, is that, again, Republicans are very good at their messaging apparatus of what they do. Democrats, not so much. But I do think in general, we all have started to have a conversation as a media apparatus that sometimes is manufactured. And I'll, an example of that is the crime conversation. I'm still waiting on the the crime issue to bubble up into a na- into, in, in the national ways in this election that everyone suggested it was, even though crime is not to say that there is. And when we talk about crime, what are we talking about? In some places, people mean gun safety. In some places, we are talking about the criminal justice. Like, we have to break it down, but this idea of crime, we had a conversation. I liken it to the conversation that we often have about the border. And Republicans say, oh, Democrats want our open borders. And then you have very reputable journalists asking Democrats, well, do you believe in open <clears> borders? <throat> Nobody believes in open borders. Maybe, maybe like three people in the United States Congress, okay? <laughs> they are not in charge. So the idea that the majority of Democrats in this country, including the president of the United States, were soft on crime, was a manufactured conversation that the media apparatus took as a serious one and bolstered the issue. Well, let, let me let me suggest the one thing about the crime issue that uh, no one has really ever expressed is the reality that most voters, they want to be tough on crime, they want to be tough on criminals, and they want to reform Policing. They want both things. It's not like wildly polarized argument when you ask voters what they would like to see as solutions. But there's also something else going on. The fact that crime is an issue. Let's assume it is an issue. A bigger issue. I than think it think. is an issue. I want to be very clear. Yeah. Crime is a it, like I, you know, let's assume, that, major let's city assume in the that all the issues that were predicted really are issues. People are, let's say, as scared as, as we say they are about crime. Let's say the border is an issue. That doesn't mean necessarily they're going to they're going to vote to change who's in office because if they don't have confidence in the alternative viewpoint all those issues might be really issues but then they're like well i just i just don't i don't see a reason to change course because i don't i don't trust the other person to get it done and i think a lot of that was going on in this election a lot of it and when you look at look i i just came back from from south florida giving a couple of speeches there you talk about a red wave unbelievable <clears throat> and i and everyone i spoke to Democrats, Republicans, I mean, there's, there is an enthusiasm for the people they elected there. Now, not everyone, obviously. I mean, but, but it was, it was, it's really remarkable. And so, so what, what went on there? What went on elsewhere? And I think, I think we've got to come back to the fact that, that, that a lot of very good candidates did win. And, and a lot of candidates who lost, despite expectations to the contrary, were not and embraced narratives that the voters clearly rejected. Now, I think actually a long-term story here, I mean, you know, this is obviously a dramatic underperformance for Republicans, which is, which one could say is disastrous, right? In the short term, this is a great thing for Democrats, bad for Republicans. In the long term, it might actually be the reverse. Because if the result of this will be a failure of Democrats to really ask themselves where their party needs to go, and what changes they need to make for the sake of the American future. And this will lead Republicans to actually have that conversation and say, you know what, this isn't wor- what, what we've been doing isn't working in many places. But we're is working it, isn't it? Are they having that conversation? So we, 
Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's, it's, there, you see it, you hear a lot of prominent national Republican leaders saying exactly that. Well, I mean, there is a difference between the leaders and the base. And so if you have, you have the leaders absolutely criticizing, you know, for example, the former right. president's involvement. But I mean, what about the base voters who, who are? Well, we'll have know, to wait and right. see. We don't know. It's too early. I mean, Elon, well, isn't it the Republicans who should be asking, how did we get it wrong? I mean, to, that's uh, my point. Well, that's my point. My point is that, that if this result of this shellacking, leads Republicans to say, okay, we, we got this wrong. We need to be thinking about what, you know, what, why, are, where, why are we not connecting voters? This is going to be very, very good for the party going forward. And I think, by the way, I think both parties have been led astray in fundamental ways, and both parties would do very well to have a conversation about, well, you know, what does the American future require, and where are we getting it wrong? And if only one of those two parties has that conversation, it's going to be bad for the other party in the long term. I think we're ignoring a fact, though, and the fact is that there were at least uh, almost 300 election deniers, people who did not believe that the current president and vice president of the United States of America were the duly elected people in 2020 and that somehow Donald Trump is still the president. 300 of those folks were on the ballot. 170 of them, by my last count, either won re-election or were newly elected. Part of the, like, the direction of the parties is there's one group of people that's willing to say, mm, facts are facts and the sky is blue. And then there's another group of people who all happen to be Republicans who either won't say so because they're afraid of losing the base or because they want power. And so I just think that there's not a, I fundamentally disagree that there are, that both the Democratic Republican, the Democratic Party apparatus and the Republican Party apparatus have to have the same conversation about how they move forward because Election deniers only exist in one party. And I think that if the Republican Party apparatus does have that conversation and make actual changes, that's just not good for Republicans. It's good for our country. It's good for democracy because we, you know, we need two strong political parties in this country. I don't believe everybody should be a Democrat. I think we need Republicans who are willing to stand up and say a fact is a fact, wrong is wrong, and this is my belief on what is right. By the way, Simone just made my point. Um, <laughs> so I was a press person for Simone, some years. Because, again, if the, if the view is that, that Republicans need to have that conversation, which we do, by the way, but that the Democrats are getting it right, I don't think most Americans think that. I think most Americans are deeply concerned by the ascendant far left in the Democratic Party. And I think that's gonna, that's gonna hurt the party badly. By the way, I mean, look at California. If, if Jerry Brown, I mean, no conservative, if Jerry Brown in his last speech as governor says, let me tell you, the Democratic Party in this state is losing touch with the regular Californians, and if we don't change, you know, you might see re- Republican gains in the state. You know, that tells you a lot. Now, of course, that's, California is an yeah. extreme example, but I really think, where, where, I really where, think there is where, a national story. Where have been the Republican gains in California? <laughs> <laughs> there, there haven't been. No. I'm not saying there haven't been, but I'm saying uh, that's what he said. Okay? And the fact that he thought that is in- extremely, I think, significant in terms of, in terms of where we're going. I think it's worth, um, thinking about this conversation about democracy separately from the conversation about the contestation between the two parties. It just so happens that it, it is divided the, the way Simone has just said, that Republicans are the election deniers. But this thing that, that Alan is talking about, that we are, the things we're fighting over right now are not the New Deal issues. It's not the role and size of government. It's not regulation. It's not Joe the plumber and the tax rate. We're not fighting about those things anymore. We're fighting about person-based identity-inflected issues, age, race, gender, religion, ethnicity, and until that changes, until we're not fighting about those things, the Democrats and Republicans are going to be very far apart. 
And people are going, Republicans are going to say that they, they love what Ron DeSantis said about like, if you want to stick it to the woke mob, come to Florida, because that's where we're going to do it. And Democrats are going to say, we don't want what those Republicans are selling with the wall on the border and the religious tests to come into the country and women can't control their own bodies. That's a big divide between those two worlds. And that's not going to go away. My father was a long-distance truck driver, and another truck crashed into him. We had just started a new phase of our relationship. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. We hadn't figured it all out, but we were making steps. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. Do the Democrats have a messaging problem? I know they're happy with the election for the most part, but do they have a messaging problem? I think think both parties have a messaging problem, that's the truth. Uh, And a lot of what people see as solutions, they don't see either party articulating very well. Whether it's crime here locally, and of course it's a national issue, homelessness is a complex issue. People want solutions, they want people off the streets, then they want people taken care of. And they don't see either either party offering holistic solutions to the, the problems that they think are the most difficult and important to address. People go by slogans, and you mentioned open borders earlier, and uh, the fact that most no nobody really wants that. Defund the police, another great example of that. I mean, if you talk to elected officials or politicians, nobody actually wants to. I'm sure there's one or two. Very people out there, few people, but, yeah. but very few people want to actually, you know, zero out the police budget. You know, people talk about redistributing money. You know, having different services. But you know, that slogan, defund the police, like that comes up in elections all the time, and it's not accurate. So I do think at times, you know, when you get you know slogans like that out there, it just it does not work in the party's favor. You can uh, stereotype uh, politically both people in both right. parties. And, you know, and, and we really haven't talked a lot about Trump, which is remarkable. But uh, <laughs> the, Trump, the, the Trump impact on the election was incredibly destructive to the Republicans. I mean, uh, a woman who owns an auto repair shop in uh, southeastern Washington state, Maria Goskamp Perez, is not funded by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or the party or anything, and she wins an election because Trump went in and took out the incumbent Republican because she voted to impeach him. Now, that, well, that's an isolated incident. It wasn't an isolated incident. There was a lot of that in this election. She didn't didn't get any support from the national sources at all. She went out and won the election on her own. Yeah. This goes back to something I think Seema said that I, that I think really uh, bears unpacking. When you um, ask Elon, what about the grassroots? I think the grassroots Republican Party voters here, and I'm no former Republican Party strategist, honey, so I'm just telling you what I read in the papers <laughs> and what I see in the streets. But this, um, this notion that Donald Trump did have a huge impact on the election because he played in a number of these primaries. And yes. candidate quality matters. What you do in a primary, you cannot often do in a general. That is very true for Democrats and Republicans. I have, I have lived it. Ask Tad Divine, okay? So <laughs> it, it makes a difference. And, but the grassroots, I mean, the people that come out in the midterm election in a primary are the most uh, staunch and rabid of voters for either party. So the people who are voting in a Democratic 
Democratic primary and off-year election. These are real big D Democrats who believe in the party and are invested in what's happening. The people who are coming out in these Republican primaries this year were a lot of people who say, hey, I'm still with former President Trump. And some instances, President Trump, he's still the president. <laughs> so I think that that bears some understanding. In Arizona, a million people voted for the election-denying candidate who was at the insurrection. He lost, but a million people voted for him. I'm concerned about the million people. If you look at these elections on uh, some of them that are still being decided, the Mm -hmm. margins are very small. 8,000, 4,000, less than 1,000 votes. So since you brought up Trump, I didn't. What's his impact? Here he is again, right? What's his impact going to be? Let's hear from everybody on this as we go forward. I I was surprised, honestly, when he went after uh, DeSantis or sanctimonious, I believe his name is. Um, no. I was surprised by the number of people who spoke out about that um, you know, right away. Uh, conservative leaders and you know, Republican Party leaders, um, and also hearing from voters who were sort of like disappointed. And I, I mean, who knows if this will have any lasting effect? Because you know we've seen uh, this with the former president for you know, for years now. Um, but it's it it made me wonder if this if that was a moment we're going to look back on to say hmm, maybe there's a little shift in the party going on here. But I do think the candidates. You know, we should talk about the candidates like Dr. Oz and um, Herschel Walker and. Um, J.D. Vance, I mean, J.D. Vance was successful. Dr. Yeah. Oz wasn't. At a high uh, cost. Right. Mm-hmm. Very high cost. And I mean, it's, I mean from outside of Philadelphia, and like, you know, when I saw Dr. Oz and, uh, you know, holding that cheesesteak in a way that you would never hold a cheesesteak in. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it just, it was a very interesting choice at the end of there. Uh, well, uh, uh, we can all be We didn't honest. mention Doug Mastriano. Right. Yeah, yeah, That's well, a he, train wreck. Right. Well, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania was a total <laughs> train wreck. Everybody imagined that the Democrats would elect John Fetterman to the United States Senate. Just forget about Dr. Oz for a second. Just think about John Fetterman, what he looks like, what he acts like, and he has a stroke on top of it in the middle of the campaign, and he, and he still wins. You know, Mastriano got blasted. But Fetterman reminded me of every guy I went to high school with, whether they're wealthy or poor, whether they're conservative or liberal. Like, that's who you would see on the weekend, like watching like a Flyers game or a Phillies game. No, they, they didn't look like Dr. Oz. I think what's interesting about the Trump announcement is the primary and that DeSantis is emerging as a viable candidate in the same space. And so then what will other candidates, other Republican candidates do? Uh, One possibility is that there is one other Republican candidate who comes to soak up the rest of the Republican primary voters. Okay, Um, that's unlikely. It's unlikely to be just one. Right, because as soon as other Republicans see the opportunity, oh, DeSantis and Trump are dividing that base, the what we've been calling the base. As soon as other candidates see that opportunity, more than one of them are going to think they're the person uh, who who's going to emerge as. So it's is it going to be 2016 Republican primary all over again? That's the I think that's the question. And you know everybody wants to sit here and say, well, you know, can't they learn from history that that's how Trump got the nomination in the first place? But you have to. This is, I think this is, I'd love to hear you guys talk about this who have been in Washington, you know, that the individual candidates, their incentives are they want to win elections. They want to be in the White House. And it's very hard to say, no, no, think of the good of the party. You should not run. We should coordinate around so-and-so. But sometimes that can happen. But I think that's the interesting thing about the Trump announcement and the attack on DeSantis. Elon, what's your take on Yeah, I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I think, look, uh, it's the pro- tragedy of the commons primaries, right? I mean, you, you, of course, of course, uh, 
you know, what, what might be best for a general election is certain conduct, but, it, but every candidate is thinking about what, you know, what they need to do. I will say, though, I, I think the dynamic would be different. 2016, you know, everyone, for the most part, left candidate Trump alone. They wanted his votes. Right. And so it was a firing squad that carefully avoided him. He was firing in all directions, but they, they, I don't think he was taken seriously <laughs> until very late in the game. By that time, he was ascended. That's not going to happen this time. And so you, I think you're already seeing the narrative. It's interesting. It's a respectful narrative. Some, in some cases, less respectful. Take Chris Christie. In some cases, more respectful. Take Mike Pence. But the narrative is very, very carefully crafted to be an anti, you know, President Trump narrative. And I think whoever's in the race, you're going to see that each one in their own style. um, He's going to be the focus. And that, I think, is going to be very different. And also, yeah. you know, he's not an outsider. You know, frankly, I never understood this, this desperation for, in both parties to, to find some kind of messianic figure from the outside who's going to save us from Washington politics. You know, sometimes you get a great candidate. Sometimes you don't. You know, you never know. But, but this kind of thing is, 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 frankly, I think, immature for an electorate to vote that way. But, but regardless, that, putting that aside, he's not an outsider. He's not an unknown commodity. He's not coming from, from out of the blue. He's a former president. Everyone knows Good and bad, by the way, I'm, as a member of the Trump administration, as an alumnus, I'm extremely proud of what we got done in many, many, many areas. I'll stand on that record any day of the week. But, you know, everyone knows the package deal that President Trump is. And so this isn't an unknown. And so I, I don't think it's going to be 2016 at all. Alon, do you think that there will be an outsider in addition to Trump? Somebody we don't know, a business corporate type or something like that? Who knows? Like Rex Tillerson? No, I do <laughs> Donald yeah, who, Trump lost yeah. in 2020. He lost the midterm election after that. And he just lost this midterm for Republicans as well with his bad choice of jumping in these primaries, which resulted in poor candidate quality. And what universe, like the voters have had ample opportunity to reject him and they have. So he's going to do what he's going to do. I'm not saying that. We don't know what is going to happen, but I I do want to say a word about Governor DeSantis. Governor DeSantis (laughs) is virtually untested outside of Florida. Election night, I said, you know, Florida is special, and it is. Florida is a very special place. If you look at the politics there, particularly the Democratic Party had no infrastructure. The fact that Miami-Dade County was over was overtaken by Republicans, it is a dereliction of duty, and the Democrats need to get their stuff together. There was no, it, there was no investment. Like, they weren't playing like Florida was a player. And if you don't play like Florida is a player, it won't be a player. You have to invest, and you have to do work on the ground in order to see results. That did not happen from the Democratic Party apparatus nationally or locally. But outside of Florida, a number of the things that Governor DeSantis has espoused um, and has talked about have been like they don't fly well in what everybody like talk about the suburbs. Okay? <laughs> they don't fly well with these suburban voters. And I'm not just talking about suburban white women because the suburbs, suburban women are also very diverse and they are younger. And so this idea that Ron DeSantis is just going to come and run the tables when all of the nasty things that he have espoused, that he's espoused is not even something that Glenn Youngkin would run on in Virginia very openly. Okay. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I think people, I think we need a, it's very easy to say now that it's Trump and DeSantis. But to your point, first of all, it's a very, it's going to be a very long primary, unfortunately, given this announcement. And there are other things can happen. Six months ago, um, or eight months ago, we didn't know about the former president trying to take the wheel and go to the Capitol. 
We didn't know. There are all these things that we did not know. Eight months ago, the Dobbs decision hadn't happened, right? So what could happen in the next six months, in the next year, in the next year and a half? I do know. Wonder, I mean, like, if you look at some of these uh, congressional districts right. where, uh, you know, where President Biden won by double digits, um, you know, there's a number in Orange County, there's a number in Southern California, um, and then you look at the, the results in this election, they were sort of returning to the norm. You know, Orange County is a great example of that. During President Trump, I mean, it went blue. I mean, it voted for Hillary, voted for Biden. At one point in 2018, you know, it elected a ton of Democrats to Congress, and now it sort of re- reverted to form. So I do wonder, you know, and that, that's a place where, you know, where a Jeb Bush would be popular. Well, would be uh, so don't, I do wonder you know, how somebody uh, like will play there. They're not reverting to norm. Because I was there during norm. <laughs> <laughs> and focus groups in Orange County were like, I would go, what planet am I on? <laughs> that it's much more democratic. Well, yes. Yeah, I know it, it absolutely, that it absolutely is. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, obviously it was, you know, such a, it was a cradle of conservatives, obviously. Right. So it's not, uh, but they are, if you look at, you know, like the congressional results this time around, it's, you know, places that Joe Biden won by, you know, 12 points, by 15 points. They're super tight in the, in the races. Yeah, that's, uh, well, we have the worst example. You know, I've talked about this. Is the 24th congressional district where Joe Biden won by 13 points and uh, the Republicans are going to win by 13 right. points. It really depends. And so this idea that Donald Trump is definitely going to be the nominee, you don't know. Oh, I don't think anyone should yeah. say that. And by the way, I agree with, with Simona, exactly what, what Simone said, and that is that it's very early, and, and look at all the all the candidates. Oh, this is the person. This is the guy. Yeah. And and how many times has that panned out? Now, I, I you know <laughs> I happen to think DeSantis is a very very strong candidate for a whole host of reasons. That doesn't mean he's going to be the nominee. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be a you know a, a, a rising star that comes. You, you know, you just don't know. And uh, and it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I'll tell you that. One of the things we learned from Trump, I think, last time, is that. Uh, can't control him. It's not going to be up to the party elders to decide whether he's in or out. There's an old expression, when you dance with a gorilla, it's the gorilla who decides when you stop. Uh, so listen, let's get to uh, audience. I want to mention one thing yeah. while we're talking about myths. Uh, has anybody found the uh, Latino wave for the Republicans yet? <laughs> Ask Myra Flores. She was supposed to be the face. <laughs> Didn't pan out. I mean, other than uh, South Florida. Well, DeSantis totally did better, different. Bill. Huh? DeSantis did better among Latino Well, it, it, I, I would, Dade well, County's Trump did exception. Better. Trump did better among Latino Yeah, he did. All in South Florida. Questions, no, comments from the audience. Anybody? Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I want to go back to the question of democratic lessons from this election, because it seems to me that the discussion is actually taking place, centering around John Fetterman, as a matter of fact, because I've seen several comments about how, you know, he went to those red counties in Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And while he didn't win a lot of those red counties, he did cut in the margins. He did do better than Joe Biden. It seems like a lot of people are... Um, trying to draw lessons from that, which might help in Florida. So, well, I mean, yeah, if you look at also um, uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, same thing there, where she did better in uh, places that uh, uh, that Republicans traditionally haven't done well in. So I do think it depends, but that, I think that's another area where it really depends on the candidate. And both of those candidates were, I think, the type of candidates who connected outside of you know, traditional Democratic well, strongholds. Well, the one thing we know, showing up does matter. Yeah. And uh, that uh, that was really important with those campaigns, and and, and and the lesson from Georgia is showing up matters too. I mean, why, why, how we got two Democratic senators is because we finally showed up. I mean, if you look at the issue set too, if you look at Fetterman and the way he talked about fracking, for example, um, it was it fit with those voters outside of Pittsburgh, where again, you know, we're fracking, you know, a huge economic issue. So I do think that's another place where you have candidate 
selection really, really matters. Yes. But John Fetterman would not be the senator from Pennsylvania without black voters in Philadelphia. There is not enough rural voters in Pennsylvania, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, to elect John Fetterman. And I think that a lesson, as I have, you know, some of my my former colleagues in different spaces and places, they've been talking. They've been talking a lot about, well, what does this mean for the ability to get rural voters? Or I've heard a lot of my Democratic strategist friends talk about, well, look at the numbers of young white voters that Democrats won. Like, this is the playbook to win white voters. Democrats have not won white voters overall in this country in the presidential since Bill Clinton, honey. Am I wrong, Tad? When's the last time they won white voters? Bill Clinton. I don't think we won them then either. (laughs) (laughs) So this idea that what the lessons we should take from this electorate is that we don't have to talk to the multicultural, multifaceted base of the Democratic Party. I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm saying this is what I'm hearing in the in the in the political streets. And that what we should do is like, let's lean more into rural counties and white voters. I think it's the wrong lesson. The lesson I think Democrats should take from this election is that showing up matters. You have you cannot write off rural America. There are people in rural America, rural America matters, but you also have to, you have to walk and chew gum at the same time and you need to expand, work to expand your electorate, talking to people that usually do not agree with you necessarily, showing up for them because if you're elected, you'll represent them too, but also speak to your base and treat your base voters as persuadable voters because you cannot expect that they will just show up for you just because they have in the past. Also, I mean, in rural communities, it's not like, you know, I doubt that Betterman won any of these rural communities. He just, he cut down the margin and that's, right. that's what you have to do there but you do have to absolutely get your base out yeah let me just say for for republicans also don't write off any constituency in this election and and previous ones recently have shown that republicans can make gains in in strong democratic strongholds and and so you don't write off any constituency if you believe in your platform you believe in your in your vision for the future then you should be able to sell it to any american and that shows confidence in, in in what you're you know what you're standing for yeah let's do this mike and then back over here Hi, uh, I appreciate all you coming on this panel. Uh, you all are, are, are some of the best minds in the field, so I really appreciate that. A couple of questions are for you, Professor Vavrick. Um, you mentioned, you know, calcification as, uh, as, as being indicative of our polarization and the, the homogeneity, hum, uh, in between the parties. Um, but I'm wondering if the 2022 midterms kind of countered some of those assumptions. Um, with calcification, we saw voters in Pennsylvania, in Florida, in the Wyoming Valley, in Miami-Dade, in my home state of New York, on Long Island. I mean, there were massive shifts in the electorate based on local issues, not indicative of, of uh, you know, homogenous parties. So I'm wondering if that may counter some of those assumptions. And then also within the, the Republican Party itself, in Arizona, in New Hampshire, in Pennsylvania, all those Trump-backed candidates were largely rejected by a lot of Republicans. So could that possibly indicate more uh, diversity within the party? And then the last thing is, I saw that you mentioned in, in the New York Times article that the election denialism was was a, an, an evident of, of, of ideological entrenchment, that Republicans were kind of using that as a, as a basis of their ideology. Most, I mean, I, I guess except for Carrie Lake, maybe, all Republicans have accepted the, the results of the 2022 midterms. So Trish, Trish trying to find things in the 2022 midterms that, that might provide some nuance there. Tell me your name. Adam Jack. Okay, Adam. Um, so I'm going to try to answer that quickly because there was a lot there. Yeah, but um, apologies I think that, about that. Um, so so um, Adam is talking about this concept of calcification that is in a book <laughs> called The Bitter End that uh, my co-authors and I have just put out and that I wrote about in the Times. And the election denialism, for sure, I think what we saw from the candidates who lost elections last Tuesday, that is 
it is a step in the right direction. That is good for democracy, that the people who lost elections did not refuse to concede, did not call on their supporters to, you know, storm the state house. I think all of that is, that is a step in the right direction, stopping the democratic backsliding. In terms of calcification, part of the idea, homogeneity within the two parties, heterogeneity between the two parties, right? The parties are farther apart than they've been since the New Deal. And that balance within the electorate, and we're fighting over identity-inflected issues. Part of the consequence of all of that, when you mash it all together, is that these elections are sort of on the knife's edge. And so you mentioned a lot of them where the Democrats or Republicans made gains, and but the but the elections are are close. They're very close. And that's that's sort of the point, is that we're going to be fighting hard for every last vote, any county, any vote, because we need every last one, because... In a lot of places, but in the country nationally, Democrats and Republicans are in rough balance. And so that doesn't mean the same party is going to win every time. It means that the contests are always going to be very, very close, and almost anything can swing them. So all the stuff we've been talking about, candidate quality, effort, the amount of advertising, the framing of the message, all of that stuff, it, it doesn't, just because we're polarized, that doesn't mean nothing matters. It means all that stuff that matters at the margins is going to determine election outcomes right now. And I think that we've talked about a lot of that in all these places, that that's what happened in 2022. In swing districts. Yes, where the where we have close elections, right. yes. yeah. Let's try to get to a... So, Mr. Carr, you mentioned that Nancy Pelosi is a polarizing force and will be stepping off. But the fact of the matter is, what makes her a polarizing force? And I'm wondering if you would agree with my premise that... She's called polarizing because she's effective. So does that mean that anyone who is effective is now going to be called polarizing? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I think people who are who are very strong and very successful will, you know, bring about a reaction. I, I think there's some truth to that. But also her, you know, I, I think I think people have found her statements, her the positions she's taken, the way she's taken them, to have rubbed people the wrong way. But but look, I I, I have a lot of respect for for the speaker and her and her uh, efficacy, her strength, uh, you know, the, she's a very strong leader. And I said that in my remarks. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, a little of, uh, it's a little of both, I guess. By the way, you know, we didn't talk about this. Speaking of, of speakers, you know, the Republicans are not going to have an easy time. And, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy, my, who's my friend, and I, I love him and I have a lot of respect for him, going to have a very hard time. And he's, you know, I, I think his, we're going we're gonna to see him, Really come out as, as a, as a strong leader and really try to, try to control a, a difficult, very slim, slim majority. That's going to be very interesting to watch. The last two Republican speakers were both pushed out of office. Nancy's stability of her leadership has been her hallmark. But the Republicans have had a bad time dealing with the internal turmoil in their caucus. Yeah. Well, Mitch McConnell did well. Mitch McConnell did well, but even even now people are complaining about him. I don't. I, as a Democrat, I don't know how <clears> to <throat> complain about Mitch McConnell. He's been, you know, a terrific campaign general for the uh, Republican Senate candidates, but they are complaining about him. If Pelosi was not a woman, I do wonder if she'd be portrayed the way she is. No, she would not. Well, I agree with that. Uh, I think this gentleman was in line first, yeah. I was wondering what you think the agenda should be for the lame duck session. Hmm. Well, they're certainly taking on marriage equality, I'll which, tell which you. I found, first of all, 
first of all, it's something that they said that they were going to do earlier in the year. They did not have the the votes. The conversation was getting tense. So they held off until now. I, though, in speaking to a lot of um, voters and strategists across the country since the election, people have found it very interesting that the Democrats have not moved to push again on Roe. Given the resounding response that it got in this election from not just Democratic voters, but Republican <clears throat> voters, Kansas, the Kansas referendum is not um, defeated without Republican voters in Kansas. I'm from Nebraska, honey. There are not enough Democrats <laughs> in Kansas to to defeat anything. So I am kind of I'm with those folks wondering, like, mm. now the president said in uh, after his press conference with Xi Jinping, after his meeting with Xi Jinping in his press conference, said that the votes are not there. And he's particularly talking about in the Senate. But I'm I'm very interested as of like right now, why not push again? So I know that this is something that some members are also talking about. So maybe some discussion that might bubble up in the next week. They may get there. Of course, what happened with uh, marriage equality, all the lame duck Republicans voted yes. Mm -hmm. So they were waiting for the election to be over. I'll tell you, people, I've, I've been openly gay for 50 years. I never thought I would see this. It's fantastic what's happening. I hope that it happens. Let's go to this mic. So I'm interested in your view about the mortality rate among the COVID pandemic and to what extent that might have impacted some close races in the election. My guess is that uh, it probably had very little effect. And I base that on the fact that when we when we dug very deeply into these data at the county level in terms of COVID, the infection rate and the and the deaths at the county level, uh, we could find no relationship to the 2020 vote outcome. And so it would be hard for me to believe that that it even somehow skipped 2020, but it's going to play a role in 2022. All right, Dana, we're talking about alternative candidates. Remember Ronald Reagan, right? I don't know that there's a Ronald Reagan out there on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, there are polls saying that a lot of people don't want Joe Biden to run. So who would you put out there instead of Joe Biden? That's one thing. There's so many major issues in the country that need to get done to to be worked on, climate change, et cetera. There has to be a leader that can really bring the two sides closer together some way, somehow, to solve all of these major issues. What a great way to close. <laughs> Center for the Political Future. Uh, p- panel, you know, Ryan Priebus and I were just talking about Ronald Reagan and the remarkable figure he is. Now, obviously, there are a lot of people on the left who very much disagree with his policy platform, but the genius of Ronald Reagan was that he was a great unifier. And he... he Yes, he moved, he moved the goalposts of the, of the political spectrum dramatically, but he did it not through division, but really by, by bringing Americans together around a shared vision for the future of the country. And whether you agree with his policies or not, I, I certainly do, but whether you agree with it or not, that is really what a great leader is supposed to do. We need a Ronald Reagan. That's exactly right. I worked for Senator, I was Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy's political director during the Reagan years in D.C., and Reagan was a really nice man. I mean, he was a very nice guy. Believe it or not, he and Ted Kennedy had a great relationship, and they worked together on issues. Uh, The contrast between Ronald Reagan and, excuse me, Donald Trump, (laughs) is incredible. I want to just jump in to just like a moment of sort of real real talk here. All of this is is true, but it is not 1984. <laughs> it is we are fighting. You know, 
My view of this is that there is no magic politician who is going to come and unify people. There may be strategic politicians, entrepreneurial politicians, who can get us fighting over things where people agree more. So that that's not persuading people to unify. That's changing the conversation to talk about something else. Universal gun background checks. Everybody wants that. But good luck. Good luck changing the conversation away from, should women be able to control their own bodies? Should there be a wall on the border? Should Muslims be allowed to enter the country? Is crime tied to race? Good luck changing that conversation to something that everybody agrees on that, you know, both candidates agree. The easiest way to make something not a part of the campaign is have both candidates agree on it. Right. So we're not fighting over the things we were fighting over in 1984. It's different. And so it's going to be very hard for a one person to unify. I will say one thing about President Biden, one hopeful, uplifting thing for the political future. About President Biden, look, whether people would like President Biden to run for re-election or not, the way the ball balances the Democratic side of the aisle is if you are the Democratic president and you would like to run for re-election, you do. There is not going to be a serious primary challenger to him. He has said he intends to run. I think that we should take President Biden at his word. This thing about coming together, I think that, go back to the last question, we talked about the, the marriage equality vote. And I think your comments about that you never thought that you would see this is something to be hopeful for. Given all the polarization in this country, given everything, the election denies, everything that's happening, Members of the United States Senate came together earlier this week and said, yes, we are going to codify protections for LGBTQ plus people. Why? Because it's the right thing to do because people are we are we are something great happened this week. And I do believe that the House will will follow suit. And I think that should give people hope because at the end of the day, politics is the people people who stand in line for political events, who who wait to see the next senator or mayor or president or vice president of the United States of America, they do so because they believe that that person, that that entity that they're going to vote for is going to do something fundamental to help change their lives. And what the Senate has done this week is, in fact, going to change people's lives. All right. What a great way to end. That's a much better note to end. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks to our panel, Elon Carr, Seema Mehta, Simone Sanders, Lynn Vaverick, and Bill Carrick. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.